Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, unless you're making corn gruel. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, and a person ready to talk turkey. Um, today's guest is third-generation turkey farmer John Peterson. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, John. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm happy to have the chance to be on and always happy to have the chance to talk turkey as we head to Thanksgiving. Right, right. And we're so happy to have uh, have, have you with. And uh, I mean, you are an independent turkey farmer, third generation. Is that common? Is that the way that most turkey and poultry are sold in our big box stores? Well, the uh, the short answer is no, that's, that's not common. Uh, we're increasingly rare. I oftentimes say we're kind of the, you know, the dinosaurs uh, left in this type of farming, but there's actually a a lot that we could unpack there. Um, But I mean, first of all, the way that we grow our turkeys is is pretty uncommon today, Uh, still having our birds outdoors and uh, raised without antibiotics. Um, And we can, like I say, jump into that more deeply as we go. But the other piece that's so uncommon is that we are an independent farm that sells directly to consumers. Um, You know, I think we've all driven down the road and seen a, you know, a farm on the roadside um, and have no ability to purchase product that that farm may grow. Um, most commonly in today's sort of integrated and consolidated ag space, uh, most of those farms are selling to a processor where you know, their product loses, loses any identity from the farm. And so it's incredibly unique for us to really be connected, we'd like to say, from farm to table, uh, where we're the, you know, we're the grower and uh, we know where our turkey ends up, and likewise, a, a consumer um, has traceability back to both where the turkey came from and the practices that were used um, in raising it. So it's not only our practices, but also the model that we're using that um, that makes us awfully rare in today's world. And this knowing each other and and knowing where our food comes and knowing our farmers, it's 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 very rich on so many levels. Absolutely, and uh, I think. Oftentimes, it's approached from the standpoint of the consumer and consumers wanting to know um, not only where did this come from, but how, you know how was this animal or, or produce, whatever the case might be, how how was it raised, how was it cared for, and how you know how was the, the land treated and the workers treated, um, and I think that's a good lens to to use to think of it from the consumer standpoint. But I'll just say, uh, as a farmer, I think it's one of the things that is so missing for most. Most farmers, the vast majority of farmers today, regardless of whether they're, you know, raising a poultry or livestock or a, a crop or produce, um, they of course have no idea where that product ends up, um, or who you know who might be enjoying it or appreciating the, you know, the effort that that farmer has put into to growing it. And so, you know, not only is it valuable for the consumer, but I think on the other side of that equation, you know, as a as a farm family, we take a lot of pride in knowing where you know, where our turkey ends up and knowing that it is both nourishing folks and uh, that, that people see the difference in how we're doing things. So uh, you're right, that relationship is important on, on both sides of the equation, Laura. Perhaps the most vital work is how do we create this self-sufficient ecosystem? And this is exactly what Ferndale's been doing. How do we how do we grow most of our food here so that we know each other and, and have that economy where we're, um, it's almost like a care-first economy where you know, we're feeding ourselves in a way that honors each other and that we know each other, right? Yeah, I uh, I agree. I, I will say it's it's not easily done, and that you know our our food infrastructure is not set up this way. You know, the ironically, the cheapest food oftentimes comes from the farthest away, 
Um, but we have really, uh, you know, tried to put our flag in the ground on local and uh, not only in the products that we carry in the store, but I think one of the best ways that we've been able to, um, you know, to believe that we're, we're making a difference is all of our processing with our turkey products is done at independent Minnesota turkey process or independent Minnesota processors, um, some that would handle other other species, not just turkey. Um, but you know everything from uh, you know our primary processing facility to you know the Lawrence Meats in Cannon Falls that makes all of our smoked turkey breasts or a facility that makes sausages for us. All all of those are fellow independent Minnesota companies, and so. We do believe that, you know, the economic piece of sustainability is important, too. And if we can help sustain these fellow Minnesota businesses that are charting a similar path, um, we hope that we're, we're helping to fuel that ecosystem that, that we want to see here. Yeah, so here's one statistic um, that uh, the four large meat packers companies went from controlling um, less than a third of the market in 1980, so not that long ago, to uh, well over 70, 80% uh, today. So that type of concentration, I don't know. It's not something I want to support. I mean, other people may want to support it, but I don't want to support it because I don't trust it. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and I again think that's part of what what was revealed um, earlier this spring, and uh, again gives us uh, more encouragement to you know to stay on the the path that we are on, um, doing something. We believe very differently. And now I want to talk about, let's get rid of some turkey stuff. Um, so we've talked about that the turkeys are outside with fresh pasture and also no antibiotics. Yes. So, again, there's a there's a couple different layers that, you know, that we can unpack this one on. But, um, you know, over the, over the course of time, uh, you know, poultry were oftentimes being routinely fed antibiotics just to speed their growth, um, not for any sort of a you know, uh, medical or therapeutic kind of a reason just to, you know, just to speed growth. And I, I do think that that has been, um, you know, on the decline over the past number of years. But, um, you know, in the in the world of conventional poultry, um, you know, there are still plenty of plenty of reasons that a, a farmer might use antibiotics. And uh, we as a family are so proud uh, that our raised without antibiotics claim is a start to finish, never, ever, um, USDA certified, literally starting with the egg in the incubator all the way through to the finished product, um, ensuring that our turkeys have never had um, antibiotics or growth promotants. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the growth promoting piece earlier, but, you know, for us, um, it's really a a check on our our husbandry and our welfare um, to say that we're we're able to grow turkeys um, in partnership with nature in a good environment. Um, and provide everything that, that they need uh, without needing, um, you know, antibiotic interventions. Um, so, so it's a lot of, a lot of pride for us, um, not only on the growth promoting piece, um, but to say that we're we're keeping our birds well uh, without the need of anything artificial. Yeah, there's been a lot written about that. You know, antibiotics, about 80% are used on the farm animals, and then now there's more antibiotic resistance. And so really appreciate that all your turkeys don't use antibiotics because there's so many consequences to that um, common practice. Um, another thing about your turkeys is they're deep-chilled, never frozen. What does that mean? 
Yes. So we, uh, it's a great question. Um, and one that we get a lot this time of year. So we do, we do have frozen products at other points in the year. Of course, if you want to buy a, you know, a frozen turkey and, uh, or a turkey in the middle of summer, it, it would in all likelihood be a frozen turkey. But this time of year, heading toward Thanksgiving, um, we, we raise flocks specifically for, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. And so we provide those as a fresh, never frozen, uh, Thanksgiving turkey. And, uh, you're right, Laura. The term that we use is deep chill fresh because they've never been frozen, um, but we're also not using any preservatives or anything like that. Uh, so our, our best means to ensure that they are, are fresh um, on Thanksgiving Day is to hold them at about 30 degrees or so, 30 to 32 degrees um, in our cooler. So they, of course, never freeze, but they can get um, almost a little, you know, ice crust just on the, just on the exterior um, to ensure that that they are at peak freshness um, by the time that a family sits down to to the Thanksgiving table on Thanksgiving. Yeah, but uh, staying safe in these times are so, so important. And um, so um, I want to talk more about um, uh, the history of Ferndale um, turkey. Um, so your, your grandfather started this with a simple vision of healthy turkeys affordable to American families. Yeah, my my grandpa was named Dale, um, and uh, I'll give away the punchline here and say that shortly after he started our farm, he met my grandmother, and her name was Fern, and so Fern and Dale were my grandparents, so that's where Ferndale comes from, and of course, a fun story and a story we're awfully proud of um, that my grandparents got us started 80 years ago, 81 years ago, um, and uh, we're we're still here and at it today, um, you know, farming on the same farm and in the same way that, that they did. And uh, you're right, just a, a quick bit of background about my, my grandfather. He grew up um, in a big family in rural North Dakota um, during the Depression years. And, of course, you know, food was scarce and meat was particularly scarce. And so he saw uh, turkey as a way to to raise a, an inexpensive protein. So the average American family would be able to, um, to put meat on the table and uh the practices that he used when he got us started in 1939 um were not unique he was not trying to go into a specialty market per se um everybody in that era would have grown their turkeys outdoors so john peterson from ferndale turkey um there's still time to order your fresh never frozen turkey you can go to ferndale turkey and uh, you can order it pick it up at cannon falls or any of the natural food co-ops, especially Seward Co-op. And um, we're going to be talking more with John Peterson in the next segment. Um, but first, I wanted to mention something that uh, just broke this 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 week. Um, the Supreme Court has denied um, Monsanto's appeal of the $87 million verdict. So um, listeners to Food Freedom Radio may remember that there was originally a $2 billion, it was the largest settlement, a $2 billion lawsuit over Roundup. This is their third appeal, and they have lost again. Unfortunately, that that re, the the result was the verdict was was lowered to eighty seven million from the two billion dollars. But the California couple retains eighty seven million dollars, and uh, so the Monsanto Roundup verdict stays. So we can have a food system that's not dependent on Roundup and fertilizers and industrial meats. We can have a food system um, growing from um, each other where we know each other. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back with John Peterson with Ferndale Turkey.
Birds are flying out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap unless you're doing corn grill, and a person on Talking Turkey. Today's uh, um, guest is third-generation turkey farmer John Peterson. And, John, when we went on break, we were talking about your grandfather. So let's talk some more about your grandfather and his vision. Um, how, how did he start this turkey farm, and what was life like for him? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when we went to break, I was... It was sort of saying that, uh, you know, when he got started in 1939, um, growing turkeys in the, the way that he did wouldn't have been unique at all. Um, you know, turkeys would have been grown outdoors. They would have been grown without antibiotics or growth promotants. Um, and so he didn't see himself as somebody who was entering into a specialty market. Um, I don't think he would have, you know, would have considered himself to be a pioneer in that regard. Um, but the funny thing that's happened, and you know this, Laura, but after over the last 80 years, it's really the agricultural world around us that has changed so much. Um, and so we sort of now find ourselves doing something that's very different uh, than the mainstream. Um, but it's it's not because we've sought that out so much as the fact that um, you know most most poultry production has moved to confinement, and most uh, poultry production has moved to more of a you know vertically integrated uh, type of a system, and uh, so today um, what we're doing looks looks awfully unique, um, but it wasn't necessarily by design. Um, I think we've just maintained the same practices and values um, that we got started with, and uh, that brings us to today where uh, where consumers are increasingly interested and aware of uh, where their where their food is being grown and how it's being produced and. Uh, Thankfully for us, we've we've been able to find um, a customer base that appreciates the difference and and supports us and allows us to sustain the practices that that we have used for all of these years. So let's let's really explore what those differences are. Um, so one of the differences is access to the outdoors and fresh pasture. Pasture. So how does that work at Ferndale Turkey? Yeah, it, it looks. Um, there are a couple different ways it looks um, based on the time of year. So I'll tell you, um, like. Early spring and uh, late fall, our turkeys would be indoor/outdoor, where they would they would always have access to the outdoors, um, and they would have a, a building that they could come back to um, on days where the you know the weather changes quickly, or um, you know that early spring, late fall, you get the you know freak snowstorm or something like that. Uh, we need to have uh, cover that they can come back to, but um, that uh, that's sort of our you know, shoulder season kind of a, an environment where they're indoor, outdoor. And then during the peak summer months, we move our turkeys completely out to range um, where they're on a, a pasture. It's called range in the world of poultry, but uh, but they're out on a pasture and uh, they have portable shelters, portable feeders, portable waters. And we actually move all of that equipment and the birds onto fresh grass each week, all summer long. So then it's a rotational uh, system where we're never overusing any one part of our range ground and uh, keeping the turkeys on both good dry grass and uh, good forage. And uh, both of those um, environments, whether they're completely out on pasture or, you know, heading toward toward Thanksgiving, the indoor-outdoor, um, our standard for our free-range program is built upon the organic standard. Um, and so all of our uh, free-range um, practices 
exceed uh, what an organic uh, turkey would, would need to do to achieve organic certification. And that's important to know because I know some of the stuff I've heard some, you know, rumblings that, um, you know, what we would sometimes think of, you know, some sometimes there's some almost organic washing going on. Um, and with some of these large entities, you're like, well, that's not what I thought I was buying when I was buying cage-free. I didn't think that meant they had just a little um, little area that they might be able to get to, but most of them are not. So, to and, and then that's part of what we talked about earlier is to actually know each other and to know the standards are are critical. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean we we want to have integrity behind um, that label claim on the package. Um, I mean, I, I I think you can trust uh, you know trust the packaging because USDA does have you know does have standards. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, there are, you know, there are different uh, degrees to which these things may be being done. And uh, so we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that we would be, we would be happy and proud to show any of our, any of our customers what's happening. So having the turkeys outside and rotated is better for the land? We sure believe so. Yeah, we're, we're really fortunate. Um, you know, I talked about my grandpa earlier, but he picked a farm that was so well suited to do exactly what we're doing here. We have really sandy soil, which means that our turkeys are are on good dry ground. Even you know, even when we get heavy rains um, or lots of precipitation, it drains really well. Um, you know, turkeys are like any species where we we don't want them out um, in mud holes or out uh, you know out where disease could be easily spread. So I'll say at the outset, we're really fortunate to have good ground to do what we're doing. Um, and we know that that's, that's an advantage, um, sort of a, you know, secret weapon that, that my grandpa was wise enough to identify all those, all those decades ago. Um, but we do believe that it's, it's better for our ground because it's really a, a closed loop. Um, you know, one of the, one of the issues that most farmers deal with is what, you know, what to do with manure. Um, and, uh, in our system, our turkeys are fertilizing when they're out on pasture, they're fertilizing the ground for, the turkeys that will come right behind it, and we never need to use any other chemical inputs um, or anything synthetic at all on our ground um, because the the turkeys close that loop on both sides. And that being humble and learning from nature instead of trying to control nature is so key. I mean, I was really happy that Dr. Rattan Law won the 2020 Food Prize because I think it indicates a, a real shift that's going on. And again, uh, Dr. Rattan Law, um, he talks about soil first. And yes, when you have animals on the soil, it helps because the manure, like you say, is a closed system, but that's actually naturally fertilizing the land. And it, it helps regenerate the soil. Yeah, absolutely. Nope we uh, we have beautiful you know lush green uh, pasture grass uh, when we when we first let our birds out and then they you know they both eat it down and wear it down. Um, but all the while they're they're fertilizing it uh, for the, the flock that will come behind them. We you know we do our part by moving them across the ground at the right pace um, and then giving it enough rest between between flocks running across it. Um, but you're right. Nature nature takes care of all the rest if if we manage it properly. So sometimes people use the word regenerative farming. Um, uh, like the CEO of General Mills talks about how about half of the topsoil in the world has been depleted, and so this type of regenerative farming that's promoted by experts like the, like the winner of the 2020 World Food Prize, Dr. Rattan Law, um, it does so much benefits. It helps water. It helps counter climate change. This is what your grandfather was doing, though, right? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, well, you know, like I said earlier, you know, doing doing it before it had a name or before it was uh, was cool. Um, this this was farming, um, and uh, again, I think that it's more of a more of an insight into how much has changed in the world of farming um, than you know than how uniquely we're doing things um, because this is this is how how he did it because of, it was the way that it was done. Yeah. So, um, and uh, from history, it's it's from 1945 to 1988, two million fewer, fewer owners of U.S. agriculture. Farmers were told to get big or get out. <sighs> that just had so many consequences, that way of thinking. Our sweetest dream is how to help small farmers and independent farmers and the whole system work in a way that honors water as life. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and now we're going to be talking about um, holistic cooking. And joining us is a holistic chef, uh, Jessica Tolliver. And uh, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So um, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, um, I am professionally trained. I went to Lake Cordon Bleu, and I grew up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I am a Korean adoptee, and I really connected when I was younger to community and food. And in the Korean culture, uh, there is a lot of community around food and passing it with family and friends. And I really didn't have that connection growing up, uh, being adopted. So I took that with me into my adulthood, and that's what started me into cooking, really, um, and connecting with my food and with others and sharing that connection. And so I went to culinary school. And then after that, I was in and out of restaurants trying to figure out where I fit in. And I wasn't really feeling connected to the food that I was producing because it was other people's food. And so at that time, I took a little break and I got into healthcare. And during that time, I realized that I was struggling with my own health issues. Um, I was dealing with fatigue and um, inflammation and some stomach issues. And since going into healthcare um, and learning more like the holistic side of things, um, the holistic approach, such as Reiki and meditation and things, I really started to slow down and put together that a lot of the ailments that I was feeling was because of the food that I was eating. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of got me down on another avenue where I wanted to incorporate food and um, healing. And so that is where I started my business, uh, Just Delicious, and then it developed into Just Delicious Living. And basically, it's incorporating um, the holistic approach to food and wellness. And I started a blog, and I, as a personal chef, I go into people's homes, and I cook for them. Um, I do small catering events. And I also uh, am now teaching virtual classes. So I do it at Seward Co-op, Mississippi Market, um, Penny George, all these different avenues 
Uh, and it's been a really awesome journey. And it's a great way for me to not only share with people what I know, but really just like hone in on what aligns with me. Oh, that's beautiful. And I, I love your name is a fun little play. Um, just delicious. So just um, J-E-S-S, which is um, your first name. Um, but it sounds like just delicious and just delicious. <laughs> that's a fun play. I know. It's not fun. I, and a lot of people actually look up just delicious first and they're like, I can't find you. And I'm like, that's because it's just. It's just J-E-S-S, delicious, just delicious. Okay. And, uh, and so you'll be teaching a class um, uh, November 23rd at Seward Co-op, um, N- Nourish 101, Vegan Mushroom Meatballs. So, yes. So tell us about that class coming up this week. Um, well, I have been teaching at Seward Co-op uh, since the Friendship Store opened about six years ago. And I live very close in the neighborhood of Central, So I wanted to participate and give back to the community that way. And Nourish is a class that is feeding a family of four for $10 or less um, with plant-based. And then with me, it would be 15 or less. And I mostly do the plant-based. And this class coming up around November, we like to do kind of like a Thanksgiving Thanksgiving approach, so whether it's Thanksgiving size or alternatives to meat, something along those lines to give people um, some ideas of what they can do. And for me, I, I am mostly plant-based. Um, I do eat fish and eggs on occasion, but I try to stay around um, being meat-free. And what I've realized is that a lot of the plant-based like process Um, meats have gluten in them and I'm actually gluten free. So developing some of these meat alternatives using lentils, legumes, mushrooms has been a way for me still to get that um, meat-like substance and flavor without having to eat the gluten. And so these mushroom quinoa balls are a great alternative and they're whole grain. So you can use quinoa, which is gluten free. And then mushrooms just have this awesome meaty texture, and they're really good at absorbing flavors when you use them. And it's it's awesome, and they're very versatile, so you can use it in substitute um, for, like, a meatball and a red sauce. You can go and put uh, extra gravy on it, and it'd be kind of savory. Um, You could even flatten them out, per se, and then eat them as patties, like little patty bites. Um, so Great. they're very can, Yeah, that sounds awesome. Is it hard to make? Um, can you quickly tell us how, how you make a vegan meatball? Sure. Um, so these meatballs, uh, they have, or meatless balls, I guess. <laughs> um, they have quinoa, and they have some onions, garlic, mushrooms. Uh, these call for bella mushrooms, but you could also use like shiitake, um, whatever you have on hand. Uh, for a binder, I like using uh, gluten-free flour. Uh, you could also use breadcrumbs if you'd like. And there's some seasonings, Italian herb seasoning, red pepper flakes, nutritional yeast, which is um, a really nutty, uh, it's got the consistency of almost 
like a Parmesan, and it's really good for adding in, and it also is a great binder. Um, these balls have coconut aminos, and coconut aminos is a substitute for soy sauce, but it's gluten-free, and um, it's lower in sodium. And then it's got a little bit of Dijon mustard. And then for vegetarians, I tell them they can use an egg as the actual binder. Um, and if you're vegan, you can use uh, just egg, which is a great egg substitute. And basically what you want to do is you cook your quinoa, and then you're going to take all your veggies, so your onions and garlic and mushrooms, and you're going to saute them until they're cooked about three minutes. And then you're going to take a big bowl and you're going to add all the rest of the ingredients. So your seasoning, your quinoa, your uh, mushrooms, your egg, and then you're going to mix it really well, add in the flour. And then they're going to be really, um, they'll be easy to form. So then you can just make your balls with it and then slightly spray down a sheet pan, put it in the oven at 400 you could also use an air fryer for these. That would be great. And the thing about an air fryer is all it does is it takes out the time of preheating an oven. Uh, so that's like the big difference, but it is mostly a smaller version. So if you want to do a full large 32 balls, then I would recommend using an oven over the air fryer. Um, and then you would just cook them for about 15 minutes and then turn them and then do another 15 and that would be it. And they actually huh. store for about five days in the refrigerator. And you can just top them with whatever sauce or eat them alone. It's up to you. Can you also freeze these? Yeah, I think so. I would just make sure it's in an airtight container. And, yeah, you could probably just reheat these in the oven um, at a low temperature. I would do about three I always like to do like bulk cooking as long as you're missing. But, but now, so if someone wants to watch you make these vegan balls, they can sign up for the class at Seward Co-op, which is on uh, November 23rd from 6 to 7. Um, and that, that is fascinating. Any other um, vegan recipes you'd like to share? You know, around the holiday season, it is uh, a great way to incorporate some vegan dishes. And I know that I don't really like using the term vegan a lot just because I think there's a lot of uh, attachments to it. And so I like mm. to just say plant-based just because I feel like people, they see the word vegan and they're turned off by it. Um, but, you know, during the holiday seasons, it's great to incorporate a lot of veggies. Uh, I do roasted Brussels sprouts a lot, and that's just a matter of cutting your Brussels, and then you can season it. Um, you can do a little coconut aminos and some liquid smoke. I will say that liquid smoke for any plant-based, veggie-friendly person, it's a great way to add that smokiness of a meat wood, so such as bacon. And then some shallots and a little olive oil and salt and pepper, and you could just roast those in the oven at uh, 400, 425 for about 10 or 15 minutes. Another great uh, dish, I guess, that you can incorporate is I have uh, Instapot Ultimate Vegan Cheese Sauce. And this is an, just such a good cheese sauce, and it incorporates um, a lot of veggie. And you'd be surprised. It's actually potatoes, carrots, yellow onion, and cashews with some broth and seasoning. Mm. And you put it in the Instapot, or you can put it on the stovetop as well. 
and you just cook that down and then you blend it and it is so good and thick and you can also hold that in the fridge and you can put that on any of your veggies. You could make a macaroni and cheese on it. Well, I, I want to slow down this because you, your whole food story, uh, also you started with saying that you realized the way that you're eating wasn't very healthy. And gooey cheese is like all over the place, right? So how do you make – this is an alternative to that common gooey cheese, which I'm sure you could be using on nachos or all sorts of different types of things that um, maybe even make a macaron cheese out of it. So how do you, how do you make this um, um, plant-based um, cheese sauce? Well, you can find this recipe on my blog, Just Delicious Living. Um, but you would take your veggies. So you would take your potatoes and your carrots and your onions, and you would dice them up. And then you would add, so let's say you're using the Instapot. So you would put it all in the Instapot, and you would add one cup of cashews. And for people that don't know, cashews are a plant-based person's dream, they get rich and creamy, and they just bring a thickness. Um, a lot of times you soak them before you blend them into a sauce. However, if you're cooking them in a broth, you don't necessarily need to pre-soak them. Um, so you would add your cashews and seasoning and then stock. And for an Instapot, it's just um, it's just a really easy way to cook quickly. So it's like uh, you're taking a crock pot and you're just, putting it on steroids. So you would put it in for three minutes and then you would release it. Um, and then there's a manual and a quick release and Instapot lingo, I guess. And basically that just means um, an Instapot is a steamer. So you would bring it up to steam and then you would let it cook. And then there's a knob to let off the steam and you would let it off after the three minutes and open it and everything will be soft. And then you would just blend it in your blender or a hand blender. So eating and gooey cheese in a healthy way. So uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be, we're talking with uh, Jess, um, Jessica with JessDelicious.com. Uh, You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking with Jessica with JustDelisLiving.com. Um, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. And when we're on break, we're talking about um, a lot of the, the standard American diet, the gooey cheese, the corn chips, the industrial meat, um, and, and and how we – how we don't want to eat that way anymore, um, and 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 so, um, so did you kind of grow up too on that standard American diet? Yeah, I did, Lauren. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I grew up in the '90s, and there was a huge fad of quick meals, um, which came with a lot of processed box foods, fast foods, and you know a lot of meat, dairy, cheese, and. I think that how you eat is a representation of how you grew up and your education around food. And it wasn't until I became an adult and I started really honing into how I was feeling that I was really like realizing how impactful what I was eating had an effect on my health. 
And so that's what started for me. And what I realized is that a lot of us, you know, we live in this hazy uncomfortability a lot, you know, bloated, fatigued, but we've lived there for so long that we don't even realize that that's not um, necessarily normal to feel. And, you know, I do have a lot of people come to me and they're like, well, I'm not like you. I can't change. You know, this is how I've eaten my whole life. And I work, uh, I work at Abbott Northwestern and I worked in the telemetry for a long time. And I would see these people and they would have to come in and they would have bypass surgeries or um, they would have heart attacks and then they would have to change their whole entire diet. And this is them coming, you know, 60 years into eating one certain way. And then all of a sudden they had to change their diet. And it can be done. It's just a matter of re-educating. And what I tell people is that, you know, it's not going to be something that you can change overnight. It's just about incorporating healthier choices. And you really just have to give yourself some grace with it because it is um, something that is a lifetime. You know, it is about sustainability. It's about, okay, I love cheese. Everybody loves cheese. Well, almost everybody wants cheese. And so it's like, how do, I, how do I go towards the right path? Okay, well, maybe I can use an alternative twice a week. Then it's finding out what that alternative is. Okay, so there's so many different plant-based alternative cheeses on the market. There's Miyoko's, Daya's, BioLife, and then trying it out. Um, maybe once a week, picking up a different cheese and then seeing how it tastes, looking at okay, I can make a cashew cheese. I can use nutritional yeast. And, you know, just dabbling in it, not necessarily being like, okay, I'm going to go strictly plant-based tomorrow. I'm not going to have any meat and I'm, you know, not going to eat any gluten. I mean, that's just not going to make anything sustainable. So you want to just kind of ease yourself into that direction. Right. And some people can eat um, plant-based and be very unhealthy if they're eating a lot of soybeans and processed soybeans and um, seed oils and I mean, so it's, it is complex. And, and each, one of the things is each one of us has a very unique microbiome. So it's not just a one size eats all. It's finding the food that resonates most with our own bodies. A hundred percent. Yes. And that is so important to remember what's good for the person next to you isn't necessarily good for you. So you have to really um, give your body the space to tell you what it wants. So if you are going plant-based, you know, try it out for a month or so, see how it feels. And if your body is craving something more, um, you know, a couple times a week you can add meat and you can add eggs or whatever works for you. It's just a matter of really listening and being objective about it. And on your website, um, you say it's it's um, food is a way to bring people together. Um, it's also a way of being. As a holistic chef, I as a holistic chef, I see the whole experience: mind, body, and soul. So, what does that mean for you? So, as a Reiki master and going through training, I realized that everything around us and ourselves included are a form of energy. So. That's actually one of the reasons why I stopped eating meat. Um, in theory, is if everything is a form of energy and if you're putting 
um, animal into your body and you don't know necessarily how that animal was raised. You don't know if it was harmed. All of that energy stagnant in that animal never leaves. So if that animal is then processed in an unfit way and then comes to your plate and you digest that, you're taking in all of that energy. And that's an extreme. But so every time that I cook with something, I want to have gratitude and I want to uh, really just appreciate it for what it's worth. So, you know, your vegetables, you want to thank the farmer, you want to thank the soil, you want to thank, uh, you know, the seeds being planted and the process of how it got to your plate. And just encompassing that whole, um, that holistic approach of gratitude and the nourishment that it gives you really changes your connection that you have with food. And you don't see it as, you know, a crutch or necessarily see it as, oh, I have to. But it's a source of nourishment and it's a source of bounty and energy and um, I think we just lose connection with food. We do it mindlessly. And once we can take out that mindlessness and really, um, I guess, just focus on the alignment with it and really be in tune with it, um, it can really change how you eat and see food. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Now, your website, again, is uh, justdeliciousliving.com. Yep, that is my blog that I started during the pandemic, um, so bear with me. It's not the best, but it is a way for me to get a lot of my recipes out uh, to people that are interested. And then as a chef, um, more for just having me come into the home and cook for them one-on-one or for parties, that would be justdelicious.com. Great. Well, I thank you so much for your time and um, and this holiday season. I mean, I do also um, I do also want to encourage um, those that do eat meat, um, like a Ferndale turkey, to also be aware then that there are animals that are raised um, in ways that are honoring that animal that are not using the factory farming approach. So there are ways of eating meat in an energy level that can also. Um, be aligned with my values, but everyone's values are different and everyone's body's different. Do you agree with that, Jessa? Jessica? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, keep the love light burning out there. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. And um, really appreciate your time, Jessica, with uh, JessDeliciousLiving.com. And if you want to check out the uh, vegan meatball class, it's this Wednesday at Seward Co-op. Oh, I'm talking to you.